Today, we close out this series that I've entitled Goodness Gracious, and we've been talking about the importance of tov, that Hebrew word that is translated goodness. I appreciate Corey covering for me last Sunday morning, and he talked a little bit about nurturing service as part of our understanding of what is good in the world. So today we come to this last message. I think it kind of puts a cap on all that we have said in the previous nine weeks. I want to begin this morning with a kind of sensitive question. Now, you don't have to answer it aloud, but I do want you to answer it in your head. And the sensitive question is this. If you consider yourself to be a Christian, and you don't have to be a Christian to come and be with us, but if you consider yourself to be a Christian, why did you become a Christian? If you consider yourself a Christian, why did you become a Christian? Now, some of you might have chosen to identify with being a Christian simply because you were born in a family that was Christian, and that's really all you ever knew. You grew up with kind of this culture around you. For other people, it might have been a low point in your life. Uh, You are looking to God to help you in some way, and some people even make promises, don't they? If you'll get me out of this predicament, then I promise to become a Christian. But I would venture to say that the majority of people that have chosen to become Christians usually have done so out of the fear of death. I think the majority of people that have chosen to become Christians are fearful of the afterlife and what awaits after we walk through death's door. Now, I know that was part of the reason why I became a Christian. So let me tell you a story. I know some of you have heard this story before, but I want to tell it uh, in a a short uh, way here this morning. I grew up in a non-Christian home, never went to church. Where I grew up in Akron, there was a church two doors up on a side street in Akron, go figure. Here's a church in the middle of a side street, two doors up, but we never entered the doors of a church. Um, My dad, my mom, they never went to church. So I grew up in a non-church home, and um, I did have a friend that started to go to youth group there, thus showing the importance of our youth work uh, to open up the door uh, to youth. And so I started to go to youth group with him during my senior year of high school, And it was there I started to make some friends. Um, After I had graduated from high school, it was in the summer, uh, this friend of mine and I, we went to the movies with a couple of girls, and um, we were taking them home, and they lived on the east side of Akron, and I was driving my 1964 uh, Ford Galaxy 500 powder blue, uh, three on the column, And uh, if you know anything about Akron, if you go down Route 8 South, you come to what is called the Central Interchange. When you come to the Central Interchange, you can go uh, 76 East or go 76 West. And these girls lived in Ellet, so we were taking them to uh, going on 76 East. Now, if you've ever pulled onto 76 East uh, through the Central Interchange in Akron, you'll know that it's a huge winding entrance ramp onto the main freeway. And so as you're going onto that freeway, 
uh, you have to kind of look in your side mirror to make sure that there's no oncoming traffic before you get out onto the freeway. And so as I was doing so, I was looking in my side mirror, and as I was just about ready to get onto the freeway, I looked up, and there was this guy right in front of me. And this guy was running across the freeway and across the entrance ramp because he, uh, had, his car broke down. Well, I hit him. And uh, as I hit him, he was thrown into the windshield and then thrown out forward uh, by, I don't know how far the distance was, but it seemed to be a, a pretty long way. And uh, we jumped out of the car, and here we are in the middle of I-76 going east, and we're looking at this young man laying on the ground. And I came unglued uh, in the moment because I didn't know if I had killed someone. He was breathing, he was semi-conscious. It was the day before cell phones, so uh, thank God for truckers that had CB radios and they probably got in touch with someone that called the emergency squad and they got the uh, ambulance out there. And it was in that moment of time, uh, it was almost as if uh, both the fear of death of someone else as well as uh, the crisis moment, God, what have I done, that kind of began to open a door in my heart uh, about Christianity and the message that Christ came to give. And um, this man was taken um, by ambulance to a hospital, and it was there that he spent a night or two, and he uh, was quite banged up, but nothing really was life-threatening. But what really did happen in my heart was in that moment, I began to think, even though I was only 18 years of age, I began to think about the fragile and fleeting nature of life, and I began to think about uh, my own life. And there was a fear that kind of overcame my life that uh, I was not sure what was after death's door. And so that kind of opened one thing to the other. And so in many ways, I became a Christian out of fear. And uh, I would venture to say that out of crisis and out of fear of the unknown, most people have chosen uh, to trust in the risen Christ. However, now most Christians, even though they choose to become Christians, they are doing so primarily for an insurance policy and trying to make sure that they will not encounter judgment in the afterlife. Now, here's the problem. That really doesn't cultivate goodness. All it does is cultivate a decision. And many times people think, I've accepted Christ and I'm good, but they go on living their life the way they want to live their life, and they choose not to become like the very one that they say they are trusting, if you're following my logic here. Something else has to happen if they are going to change. Now, I do not think I have ever, ever heard anyone say, at least in my experience, maybe you have, I have not heard anyone say, I became a Christian because I want to become a good person. In fact, most people already think they're pretty good people because, after all, I'm not as bad as Uncle Fred, right? Or this guy down the street. 
So we compare our goodness to somebody else's badness. Yet we are called upon in the Bible to become Christ-like, which implies that maybe we're not as good as we think we are. Are you following what I'm saying? That there's some room for development. Uh, there's room for improvement. There's room to mature in our faith. What if becoming a Christian is your best chance as a human being to become a really good person? Let me say that again. What if becoming a Christian is really your best chance as a human being to become a really good person? Now, the reason I say that is not because there's not other good role models. Certainly there are. There are many good role models in many different religions around the world. The reason I say that is I have a firm belief deep down in my heart that Jesus Christ is the best person that has ever graced his presence on this planet. I really do. And if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see what I'm saying, that he is an individual from his life, from his teaching, from the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that he promises to give us, that he is able to make us into something more than we currently are. Now, religion, especially Christianity, tends to harp upon us being sinners. And obviously, we have all fallen short of God's glory. However, that's where a lot of times religion leaves us. In other words, it just leaves us feeling bad about ourselves. We're never as good as we had hoped to be. We're always failing. There's always shortcomings and so forth. But what if that's all taken care of through the resurrection of Jesus? What if forgiveness is already taken care of? What if the sole purpose of Christianity is not to get you into heaven after you die, but what if part of Christianity is to enable all of us to become better people? Because here is a core belief that I have. We all want our world to be a better place, right? I bet if we went around the room, every one of us would say we all want our world to be a better place. But I have a core thought here. The world will not become a better place to live unless there are better people living in it. Okay. Let me say that again. The world will not become a better place to live unless there are better people living in it. So what is your best chance of becoming a better person or a good person? And I don't mean incidental goodness, as in you bought a birthday card or a birthday cake. Happy birthday, bud. What I mean is a part of our core identity is we want to be a good person. When we delegate Jesus to afterlife affairs just to assuage our fear of death, maybe we're missing something. We're maybe missing the very core of what Jesus wants to do in our lives, to become a better person, not a more harmful person. Have you ever noticed that people sometimes who become fanatical about religion actually are more harmful than they are healing toward other people? Why is that? Because here's this fear that I got to get it all right. And if I don't get it all right, 
then God's out to get me. Let Jesus take care of that, brothers and sisters. He's already taken care of that. Let yourself be understanding of this critical point that he meets you where you are and he continues to work in your life to make you a better person. doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means there's room for growth, there's room for development. So goodness is a part of the ongoing work of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And I don't think we're straight up with other people when we tell them, you need to trust Jesus as your personal Savior. Because all we tend to stress is the afterlife. What I think is a more truthful representation of the gospel is, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Christ is out to make you a better person. And in, as a result, the world becomes a better place too. Now, that world might not be worldwide, but it might be your world, your world in your family, your world in your work world, your world in your neighborhood, your world in your group of friends. So we have been talking about the circle of Tov. And in your uh, worship guide there, you see that circle. And it's a little bit small, but we have talked about these things already in the past previous weeks. Um, that a part of cultivating goodness is nurturing empathy, nurturing grace, putting other people first, telling the truth, nurturing justice, nurturing service. And today, we're talking about Christ-likeness. So let's dive into that a little bit more. Now, do you remember this little fad a couple of years ago? You remember these? These Fitbit things that uh, fidgets that um, you know, people play with and you know, they try to balance it on their pin, uh, finger and so on and so forth. And this thing will continue to just rotate endlessly, won't it? You just kind of hold it, you can go you know, mow your lawn and come back and it's still going type thing. Now, instead of these three little weighted holes here, I want you to think about these qualities that we've been talking about over the last previous week. You know, God continues to work in our life, but he doesn't stop. It continues to go around and around. And so I might think I've made some real advancements in empathy toward other people, but God says, no, you got a ways to go still. Let's try that again. You know, are you following what I'm saying? So it is that ongoing process, technical term of sanctification, where we are continuing to grow uh, and become what God wants us to be. Now, the more that we practice Tov, hopefully more, the more uh, the culture around us begins to become a better place as well. So we practice these uh, qualities of empathy and compassion and grace and putting other people first and telling the truth and promoting justice and serving others. Um, you notice how I said all those again, so just I'm embedding them into your brain a little bit. So you're going to go around and around in that, and as you circle that goodness, then hopefully we, first as a church, and then out beyond us, become a better community. So um, when churches become only business corp or corporations or institutions, and when pastors cease to be pastors, it's then that churches cease to be churches. Because 
they can often become toxic rather than the presence of code. So sometimes the American meritocracy has reshaped pastors and churches, uh, and a new culture, I think, has taken root based on achievement and accomplishment rather than goodness and Christ-likeness. And so what we see is in a society in which we live that's focused only on achievement and accomplishment, the challenge we face as Christians and as a church is being squeezed into that mold. And it seems as though achievement and accomplishment become the two foundational pillars of the church rather than goodness, rather than love. And those are the qualities that are really emphasized in the New Testament. And what has changed is even the definition of words like character. So there's a guy by the name of David Brooks. He is a sociologist and cultural observer. And he makes a statement that is quite thoughtful. Um, he says words change their meaning. He says character is no longer a moral quality oriented around love and service and care, but a set of workplace traits organized around grit, productivity, and self-discipline. Community, too, is relabeled, he says. The meritocracy defines community as a mass of talented individuals competing with one another. It organizes society into an endless set of outer and inner rings with high achievers at the center and everybody else arrayed across the wider rings toward the edge. In other words, everything's about competition then. And when that becomes kind of the identity of the church, obviously, you're not worried about going around the circle of Cove, are you? You're more concerned about being bigger than the church down the street. You're, being, you're considering about all these other things that present you as a success. Well, when pastors simply become leaders, as in the business world, when they become simply entrepreneurs or visionaries, sometimes what we find is the church is now redefined as an organization rather than an organism. The New Testament calls the church the body of Christ. In other words, he's the head, we are the arms and the legs and so forth. And what happens is we begin to look into the Bible as a source for finding leadership principles so that I can achieve and accomplish certain things in my other world. So let's look at Moses as a leader. Let's look at Joshua as a leader. Let's look at Ezekiel as a leader. No, don't look at Ezekiel as a leader. Nobody looks to him as a leader. Uh, he, he's kind of a crazy visionary is what Ezekiel is. However, churches then become simply about uh, doing um, doing the study, the demographic study, of how they can succeed rather than doing the core of what's important, being good people, loving people as Christ would love them. And so churches begin to do customer satisfaction surveys, and uh, then we begin to see how the bottom line is about giving units rather than about people that we can love and so forth. So a leadership culture turns a church into an organization rather than an organism whereby we can love one another. So the more ambitious a pastor or the leader becomes, or the more narcissistic a pastor or a leader becomes, the less of a church 
the group of people that are following that pastor become as well. So the late Eugene Peterson, a well-known translator of the Message Bible, uh, and a, he is an author of many dozens of different books on, um, on, on the church. And here's what he says. I want to quote a couple of things from him. He, uh, he in particular, is concerned about uh, pastors only as leaders, entrepreneurs, and managers, rather than spiritual directors of the faith community. That is, helping to uh, produce spiritual formation in the lives of people around him. So he says this, and I quote, In the process of realizing my vocational identity as a pastor, I couldn't help observing that there was a great deal of confusion and dissatisfaction all around me with my pastoral identity. Many pastors, disappointed or disillusioned with their congregations, defect after a few years and find more congenial work. And many congregations, disappointed or disillusioned with their pastor, dismiss them and look for pastors more to their liking. In the 50 years that I have lived, the vocation of pastor, these defections and dismissals have reached epidemic proportions in every branch and form of the church. I wonder if at the root of the defection is a cultural assumption that all leaders are people who get things done and make things happen. That, that is certainly true of the primary leadership models that seep into our awareness from the culture, politicians, businesses, uh, businessmen, advertisers, publicists, celebrities, and athletes. Being a pastor certainly has some of these components. The pervasive element in our 2,000-year pastoral tradition is not someone who gets things done, but rather the person placed in the community to pay attention and call attention to what's going on right now between men and women, with one another, and with God. And he uses the word Christ, uh, Christ deformity. In other words, the whole objective is to help people become more like Christ. The goal of a pastor is to help each person reach his or her potential in their following of Christ. Now, we read a passage of Scripture earlier out of Galatians chapter 4. And the reason I chose that passage of Scripture is that in the book of Galatians, Paul is using the metaphor of being in labor until Christ is formed in them. And so he is uh, talking about being in labor pains and the process of bringing new life into the world. Now, in this book um, Bible that I have here, it's called the Life with God Bible. There's a footnote on this uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Christ is formed in you, and I want to read it. It says, the alternative to the deathly strain of self-improvement under the law is the life-giving formation of Christ in us by the Spirit. This is God's purposeful work in us, using all the raw material of our lives circumstances, family, personalities, successes, and failures to conform us to the image of Christ, Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. We participate passively by trusting God's love and wisdom in the process. We participate actively through the practice of the spiritual disciplines, which, far from being the binding legalism Paul condemns in this letter, are the liberating pathways to God's grace. I think that's a great statement of what Paul is trying to do. He is knocked off his horse on the Damascus Road, and he has a vision of a whole new way of life, and that's what he labors to do in the lives of other people that he's in touch with 
as he travels throughout his world. So life in Christ is more than a moment and a deep and, and it is deeper than a decision. It is shaped for more than afterlife affairs. It understands that salvation, as God gives it to us, is the process of being shaped and reshaped into the character of Christ. So let's change the metaphor for a moment from this fit, uh, this uh, uh, Fitbit gadget. Or what is it called again? It's called a, what is it called? Fidget spinner. Okay, so it, it's different than this fidget spinner. So this past week, we were on vacation up in New England. And we visited Newport, and we visited Providence, and we visited a place called Mystic, Connecticut. And Mystic, Connecticut, a uh, charming little town, but what it's known for is over the years of its existence, has built over 600 ships. Can you imagine that? 600 ships. And they are all built probably in much the same way. There's framing that is put in place. There's covering that's put on that framing. There is the deck that is put on the ship. There are the, if it's a sail boat, you have the sails that are erected. That is kind of what it's like when we are being shaped in Christ. When we first come to know Christ, the framing is put in place, right? It's not a ship yet. It's not a ship yet. It needs to have a covering over it, needs to have a deck put on it, it needs to have a sail so that when the wind blows, it can be taken in a direction that the captain wants to take it. You know who our captain is? Jesus. And he is shaping us. He's putting the decking in our life. He is erecting the sail so that by his spirit, he can move us in ways that we can become a great presence of goodness in our world around us. And that, of course, is what is talked about so many times in the scriptures, that success in Christ is redefined from the business world to the idea of a community. It's called koinonia in the book of Acts. This fellowship of people that's allowing God to do what he wants to do and allows his people to grow in goodness. So. That's what we're trying to do here. We might never be a big church. We might become a bigger church. I don't know. But what we are trying to do is pour into each other's lives so that we can become better people than we are right now. And so when we are helping each other, what we are doing is building this beautiful ship that ultimately God wants to erect the sail and then fill with his spirit to take us out into our communities and in our world and be the presence of Christ in our world. So I would like for you to stand with me. And I have in this worship liturgy a closing prayer. And um, it is a prayer that I think talks about this process that we go through as we cultivate goodness. So let's use this as our closing prayer. Holy Spirit, I'm going to be honest here. I'm not so fond of transformation. I'm not so hungry for adaptation. I'm not so keen on modification. Leave things just as they are, please. But how can I ask you for this? And how can you possibly answer this prayer? What could I be thinking? How little could I know you? You're torrential. And we're sopping and we're soaked 
because we are caught in the downpour of your desire to transform us from the inside out and also from the outside in. So, Lord Jesus, let your goodness reign on me. Make that your prayer today. Lord Jesus, let your goodness reign on me. And all God's people said, Amen. May you have a great week. May you have a good day. See you soon. God bless you.